morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here. This Washington Post story unreal. is unreal. I, I felt I was reading it, it felt like a movie script, like a screenplay. It's incredible reporting. We're going to tell you all about it if you're just waking up with us this morning, because yeah. this is about those leaked documents yeah. and who it was online that uh, leaked them. A young person. Named? OG. OG. And then there's a teenager involved, and it involves like a social media gaming it's site. It's a whole it's, lot, a lot. You want to stick around for this. Uh, and critical for national security, so we'll get into that. We're glad you're with us. Caitlin's on assignment, so let's start with the five things to know for this very busy Thursday, April the 13th. A federal appeals court partially blocking a Texas judge's ruling on the abortion pill mifepristone. It means the FDA's approval of that drug still stands for now, but other limitations have been put in place. More on that in a moment. Yeah, it's a complicated story. We're going to break it down for you. And this is what we were just talking about. We're getting our first clues about who has been leaking U.S. government secrets. The Washington Post is reporting that he is a young man who was trying to impress his friends online. His friend calls him OG, and he says he worked on a military base, wow. we're going to explain. And a 50-year flood event striking Fort Lauderdale. Record amounts of rainfall in just a few hours. The airport expected to be shut down until at least noon today. We have a mutual friend who's there. We'll talk about it. Who oh. is stuck okay. there in the middle yeah. of these floods. Yeah. We will talk about that. Also, Senator Dianne Feinstein has asked to be temporarily removed from the Senate Judiciary Committee. She has faced pressure from some, even in her own party, to resign from the Senate because of her absence due to shingles, and that's been delaying efforts to confirm key judges. Also, later today, jury selection will begin in the Dominion defamation suit against Fox News. That judge has already sanctioned Fox for withholding evidence. CNN This Morning starts right now. Take a deep breath. It's a lot. one of these stories we could have led with. That's where I was thinking this That's morning, which say. one are we going to lead with? Huge. We'll get to uh, the leak in a moment, but a huge development overnight for women across this country, right, in this legal battle over the widely used abortion pill mifepristone. An appeals court has ruled that it will remain available for now, but that court also did impose some temporary restrictions on how you can get it. Women won't be allowed to get the medication delivered in the mail. That's a huge deal in some states. This all comes as the Justice Department fights a federal judge's ruling in Texas. He abruptly suspended the pill's FDA approval last week after it had been on the market and available to women for 23 years. So let's start with our Supreme Court reporter, Ariane DeVogue. This is fascinating. It's sort of uh, split down the middle, kind of partial Temporary freeze, where does this leave women across the country this morning? Right. The appeals court gave a partial win to the Biden administration in this ruling that came out late last night. It agreed for now uh, to freeze, uh, to uh, allow the government approval of that key drug to stay in place. That maintains the drug on the market for now. However, it did make some cutbacks, cutbacks on what the FDA has done in recent years to make it easier to obtain this drug. And here are what some of the cutbacks are. Finding it could be distributed by mail, as you said. It could be dispensed later in pregnancy. It could be administered by non-doctors. 
So this court still, it gives a victory to the Biden administration right now in the early parts of this uh, case. However, it is still expressing some skepticism about the safety of this drug. So the challengers, uh, they now are going to consider whether or not to go to the Supreme Court. Do you think they will? So I don't know. The Biden administration and the manufacturers now, they could. They could decide at this early phase to go to the Supreme Court and to make this appeal. Or they could sit back for now because this appeals court has put this on a really expedited time frame. So they could wait, not appeal to the Supreme Court. And this now will continue in the lower courts. But it was an important partial win for the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. This appeals court really cutting back a little bit on what that broad ruling from last week held. Yeah. I suppose you would expect that if DOJ does prevail in the appeals court um, fully, then it would be appealed higher um, by the petitioner. So we'll, we'll yeah. see where it goes. Ariane, thank you very much. We'll continue we'll to check things. in on that. Also this, it looks like the Washington Post might be zeroing in on the person who leaked the top secret Pentagon documents on social media. The Post spoke to one of the alleged leakers online online friends. And he says a leaker posted hundreds of pages of photos of classified U.S. intelligence in private group in a private group on Discord. It is a platform that's popular with video gamers. Now, the friend says that the user who is known as OG indicated that he brought the documents home from his job on a military base. OG claimed that he spent some of his day inside a secure facility that prohibited cell phones and other electronic devices that could be used to steal secret information. I was first made aware of these documents, I want to say about six to eight months ago. I was in a Discord server by the name of Doug Shaker Central. And in this channel, there was classified documents being posted by a user who I will refer to as OG from this point. The documents were often listed as Ukraine versus Russia at first. However, it slowly spiraled into just intelligence about everything. So the Post is reporting that OG took hundreds of photos of the actual documents and shared them with the group, including detailed charts of the battlefield in Ukraine and highly classified satellite images. National security reporter Natasha Bertrand is at the Pentagon with more. Natasha, this is an unbelievable story to read. He had been posting them for a while. The folks there didn't believe, you know, that it was actually real. And the friend says that there were Russian users in this online group. Yeah, Don, this is really remarkable reporting here. So what we are learning is that the uh, alleged leaker of these documents was someone who works at a military base, according to this friend who was on this server with him and had been posting documents for months and months in this group chat that did include foreign nationals, including, according to this friend, Russians and Ukrainians, as well as other people who said that they were from Eastern Europe. Now, it is not clear at this point, of course, who this leaker actually is. He is only being referred to as OG and the friend has refused to identify him at this point because they say they are they are aware that the FBI is undergoing a very intense leak hunt for this person but they know where they, they know his real name they know where he lives they say and they know that he works on a military base where he can have access to all of these documents but look in terms of, of what this group actually was and what kind of bound them together it appears that they all had a love according to uh, this this friend here of God the military gun uh, here is part of what he had to tell the Washington Post. He was, a, he was a young, charismatic man who loved nature, God, 
who loved shooting guns and, and racing cars. He did see himself as the leader of this group and he ultimately he was the leader of this group and he wanted us all to be sort of super soldiers to some degree, informed, fit, with God, well-armed, stuff like that. So originally, according to the Post, OG, the, the leaker, alleged leaker, was actually hand transcribing these classified documents that he was bringing home from his work every day. Ultimately, that became too tedious, according to this friend, and he actually just started taking photos of the documents themselves and posting, on, posting them online. And those are the documents that CNN and other outlets have been reporting on for the last week or so that has spurred a massive investigation across the federal government for this alleged leaker, Don. Natasha, let's talk about um, his intentions here just to keep his friends informed. He wanted them to be informed about what the government was doing. According to his friend who was on this chat with him, it appears that he was motivated by a very dark view of the government. He was not necessarily uh, motivated by, for example, uh, you know, it being in favor of Russia or being in favor of Ukraine. He was motivated instead largely by conspiracy theories, and he had a very dark view of the intelligence community and the military writ large, and he wanted to show his friends kind of where uh, taxpayer dollars were going in terms of the intelligence community, what the military was doing doing, and of course the kind of support that the U.S. has been providing to Ukraine. He wanted to keep this group up to date on current events, and one of the friends did say that they were always impressed by how ahead of the news uh, he seemed to be. So obviously this is going to provide a lot of fodder for law enforcement and of course the Pentagon who have been turning over every stone to find this guy, Don. Yeah, and it's just the beginning of figuring out who he is. Thank you, Natasha Bircher, for joining us from Washington this morning. Just stunning reporting. Also this morning, Senator Dianne Feinstein is seeking uh, and asking uh, Chuck Schumer to temporarily replace her on the Judiciary Committee after facing pressure from some within her own party to resign completely from the Senate. This is because of a lengthy absence she has had from health issues. On Wednesday, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California and Democrat Dean Phillips of Minnesota both urged her to step down. Lauren Fox joins us from Capitol Hill. I believe, Lauren, one of the words... Um, Congressman Phillips used a sort of like dereliction at this point to, to just like leave this open because you need her to confirm all these judges. Yeah, I mean, it's an important reminder that the Senate Judiciary Committee is narrowly divided, and with an absence like Senator Feinstein's going on for more than a month now, that committee is starting to get into a backlog of some of those lower court judges the Democrats view as really essential to continuing the Biden administration's legacy in the court. So what she's asking for, what she released last night in a statement, is that Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, temporarily replace her on that committee with another member. Remember, she serves on other committees as well, but this committee really essential because of the belief that if she's not on the Judiciary Committee, if they can't vote out those judges, you really start to get into a backlog situation. So a very significant ask from Feinstein and Chuck Schumer announced in a statement last night that he is going to respect her wishes and next week will try to move to replace her on that committee temporarily. Here's where it gets tricky, Poppy. As of this morning, we still don't know whether Republicans would agree to let Democrats do this easily or whether they're going to put up a fight. Normally, when you're a member that you get named to a committee, it is a vote of the Senate that is so non-spectacular that most Americans back home aren't even paying attention to it. There's wide agreement. Sometimes they even get unanimous consent. In this case, it's not clear whether or not Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, given the fact he also views the lower courts as a powerful tool, wow. think about that abortion case right yep. now, 
it is a big question whether or not he's going to willingly allow this to move forward. Democrats would need 60 yeah. votes in the Senate if this goes to a vote. Well, that's so fascinating. And McConnell has been so effective for his party in getting so many of these federal judges confirmed. And now with this abortion case, we see the power, right, of them playing out. Lauren, thank you very much. In the next hour, we'll be joined by California Democratic Congressman Rokana, who, as we said, has called for Feinstein to resign. That's going to be a tough one to do. We'll watch that one, and we'll look forward to Rokana. Meantime, former President Trump back in, a new, in New York for a deposition as he faces yet another legal battle. The question is, will he cooperate? Another very big story unfolding this morning. Jury selection begins in Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox. Now, the trial is still moving forward despite the judge sanctioning Fox for withholding evidence and his plans to appoint a special master to investigate whether the right-wing network lied to the court. Fox has denied any wrongdoing in the case. In a pretrial hearing yesterday, Dominion also played previously unaired audio of Fox host Maria Bartiromo and former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani discussing whether Dominion had ties to top Democrats, which is a claim the network's guests made in 2020. I'm going to be asking you as, as much evidence as you can tell us about these lawsuits. Whatever you can tell us in terms of evidence would be really helpful. Okay, great. I can tell you exactly what we have. Perfect. And um, what about this software, this Dominion software? Uh, that's, that's, that's a little harder troubling. to tell you right. It's, being, it's anal being analyzed right now. I mean, there are a couple of races that have been reversed because uh, the Democrat was triple counted to, to already in Michigan. Now, whether that applies for the whole state or not, I, I can't tell you yet. This Dominion software, does Nancy Pelosi have an interest in it? I, yeah, I've read that. I, don't, I, I can't prove that yet. Okay. Okay. So a lot of allegations there. And there you see our Marshall Cohen. He is in, in, in Wilmington, Delaware this morning following this case. Good morning, Marshall. What else did you take away from, from court yesterday? A lot of drama in court yesterday, Don. Good morning. I was in the courthouse right behind us when they played that tape that you just played. And when the judge heard it, he said it was extremely relevant to this case. And he wanted to know why Fox had only turned it over to Dominion last week. This case has been going on since 2021, but Dominion says it only got this material last week. The judge has decided to appoint a special master to investigate Fox, to figure out, number one, if they intentionally withheld this tape and other tapes, and number two, if there's anything else out there that Fox needs to turn over to Dominion as part of the discovery process. A pretty big development on the brink of trial. And I do want to point out that Fox says that they've done nothing wrong. Fox said that they turned over this tape and related tapes as soon as they learned about it in a related lawsuit just a few weeks ago. But clearly, with this trial commencing as we speak, they're already in some hot water. Yeah. Listen, there's so many twists and turns in this case. I mean, we shouldn't underplay the fact that the judge sanctioned them for withholding evidence. That is huge. That's how people win lawsuits. And there's also jury selection happening just hours away. What is today going to look like? 
It's going to be a long day. 300 Delaware residents have been summoned to this courthouse. They're there to do their duty, their civic duty for jury service. They need to whittle that down to 12 jurors, 12 alternates that can be fair and impartial, give Fox a fair case, give Dominion a fair case. That's going to happen today and tomorrow. If everything goes as planned, opening statements should begin on Monday. Marshall Cohen, Wilmington, Delaware, following the Dominion voting system case against Fox News. Appreciate that. A little bit later on, we'll be joined by Vanity Fair special correspondent Gabe Sherman on his new piece about Rupert Murdoch and the real-life succession battle among his kids. That is a fascinating read, by the way. This morning, Donald Trump is back in New York for a deposition in a civil lawsuit filed by uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James. It alleges that Trump was involved in a decade-long scheme to defraud lenders with false financial statements. His children and the Trump Organization are also listed as co-defendants. The former president invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 400 times in a previous deposition in this case. You'll remember that from August. Kara Scannell is on top of it, live outside the New York AG's office. Um, so Trump is expected to attend the proceedings today. What's going to happen here? Well, Bobby, that's the big question. Will the former president answer questions this time or will he continue to assert his Fifth Amendment right against incrimination or does he do a combination of both? I mean, when we were here back in August, the attorney general's office was still investigating the Trump organization and there was an active Manhattan district attorney criminal investigation also ongoing at that time. Since then, they filed that lawsuit, the $250 million lawsuit. And so the Trump team has now been able to see what all the allegations are against him. They also had a first look at all the questions that the AG wanted to ask him, those 400 questions that he didn't answer. So now they're back again today at the request of the New York Attorney General's office, and the president and his legal team have to make this decision of will he answer questions, some questions, or no questions. And one of the calculations here could be in a civil lawsuit, if you don't answer questions, the jury can hold that against you. So it would be essentially saying, you know, a non-answer is a, is a bad answer for the defendant. So that that could be part of the calculus here of why he could come in and answer questions this time. You know, though, however, it is still a gamble because the Manhattan District Attorney, which did announce criminal charges against the former president related to the hush money payments, you know, only just a few weeks ago, um, they're still in conducting an investigation into the accuracy of these financial statements. So it certainly is not without risk, but a big question will be what happens today. And we're waiting here to see how this will unfold. Poppy. That's so interesting that the jury can hold a non-answer, taking the fifth against him in a civil case. Before you go, Kara, let's talk about what Trump has done filing a lawsuit, a new lawsuit, $500 million lawsuit against his former lawyer, Michael Cohen. Um, in reading about it this morning, the question is sort of, can Trump use this as a way to silence Cohen so he wouldn't testify? Well, that's, that's the angle that Michael Cohen is saying in his response. His attorney is saying that this is a tactic by Trump to try to silence Cohen, to try to harass and intimidate him, and to send a message to other potential witnesses who are cooperating in any of the investigations against Trump. I mean, this is particular to this long relationship that Trump and Cohen have had, where Cohen, of course, worked for him, was his you know personal attorney, was an employee of the Trump organization. And the essence of this suit is Trump is saying that he violated agreements, confidentiality agreements, attorney agreements, by spreading both both confidential information in the books, podcasts, and television interviews Cohen has given, but also misinformation. This will all play out in court in Florida once it starts moving through the system. Poppy. Carol, thank you on both those fronts very much. Also tonight on CNN Primetime, Caitlin will sit down for a one-on-one -on -one with Michael Cohen. 
You can watch that only on CNN, 9 p.m. Eastern. What we're learning this morning about actor Jamie Foxx's condition after he was hospitalized overnight in a major South Florida airport forced to stop flights because of nonstop raining. We're going to take you live to those floodwaters. That's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. 12 years doing these type flooding stories in South Florida. This is the worst I've ever seen. This is an unbelievable amount of rain. And it, it rained for a couple days leading up to today's event. That left just nowhere for all this water that has fallen the past four or five hours to go. Yeah, that is saying a lot. 12 years, that reporter was saying. From our affiliate down in South Florida, WSVN, where historic flooding is stranding travelers, is stalling cars, is breaching buildings. If you don't believe me, we're going to get there in a second. Officials say it is a one in 50 year rainfall event as nearly a foot of rain fell in just hours. Now, Fort Lauderdale's airport is completely shut down until at least noon today. And you can see this man being pulled from his car. It's outside the airport as Rising floodwaters turn streets into rivers. Look at him. Look at the water there. Wow, crazy. Straight out of CNN's Carlos Suarez, live for us in Fort Lauderdale with more this morning. He is standing in a whole lot of water as well. Carlos, good morning to you. I hope you're being safe. What is the latest where you are? Well, uh, Don, good morning. So a good part of Broward County is waking up uh, this morning underwater. We're in a neighborhood just north of Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, where, as you can see behind me, the street here is flooded. Drivers, they are in some cases going the wrong way. They're going opposite traffic when they realize their cars will most likely not make it past all this water. What you're taking a look at here is flooding. That is the result of three days worth of rain as well as a full day of rain yesterday that really would not let up. This is Fort Lauderdale. Heavy downpours and thunderstorms here and in many other parts of South Florida. Vehicles submerged and this video shows a person swimming down a flooded street. Weather forecasters are calling the rainfall in some areas of Broward County a one in 50 year rainfall event. Some other places are seeing even more extreme rainfall, possibly up to 20 inches of rain. That would be at least a one in 200 year rainfall event. All this according to a CNN analysis of precipitation statistics from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. On Wednesday evening, officials in Fort Lauderdale asked residents to avoid driving or traveling to or across the city. In a news release, they told residents, quote, public works staff are clearing drains and operating pumps to mitigate the water as quickly as possible. The Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport was a drenched mess for many travelers, as shown by this video posted on Facebook. Another person posted this video and photographs on Twitter, an airport almost completely paralyzed by the historic flooding. By Wednesday evening, the airport was closed. Heavy rain in Miami-Dade County as well. Here too, in the city of Miami, residents are experiencing severe flooding. In Hialeah, streets have become rivers. For many residents of this mobile home trailer park, the water is not draining fast enough. On Wednesday night, the National Weather Service told residents in South Florida to stay off the roads and not attempt to travel unless they're fleeing an area subject to flooding or under an evacuation order.
And coming back out live, cities across Miami-Dade and Broward County, they're using portable water pumps in some neighborhoods, all in an effort to try to get this water out. The situation is bad enough here in Broward County that schools have been canceled for the day. And over at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, that's about a five-minute drive from where we are right now, that airport is not scheduled to reopen at the earliest until later today. And already, according to FlightAware, we're looking at about 300 canceled or delayed flights. Yeah, Guys, this, is, this is giving like hurricane type um, weather images. Carlos, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, this morning, Oscar winning actor Jamie Foxx is recovering after being hospitalized. His daughter posted on Instagram last night that he had experienced some sort of medical complication. She said, luckily, due to quick action and great care, he's already on his way to recovery. We know how beloved he is. We appreciate your thoughts, your prayers. The family asked for privacy during this time. We know Fox has been filming a new movie in Atlanta, but there's no word on exactly what happened. We're thinking about him this morning. Yeah, one of the most talented people Amazing. out there. Yeah, so we wish him very well, Jamie and the entire family. Plus, this. It is there, you it's know no music? hard. It's She's not, not hard. hard. There's something missing there <laughs> yeah. for Rupert Murdoch. And I don't know this music. I would imagine it's succession. Come on. You know this music. I don't know this music. I, I saw the first ep couple of episodes. and then I, I was watching it on the train back from D.C. yesterday. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is a from, we're talking about the Vanity Fair piece, yep. right? And Gabe Sherman is going to come up, but it talks about what's going on with the Murdoch family, Rupert Murdoch, and this whole trial that's going on. And so um, Gabe Sherman is going to be here straight ahead. As we saw just moments ago, when we had Marshall Cohen live uh, from Wilmington, Delaware, just a couple of hours, jury selection for the Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox News will get underway. And this morning, we are learning that the past 12 months have been pretty chaotic for Rupert Murdoch, and it goes beyond this high-stakes case. Vanity Fair's Gabriel Sherman has the behind-the-scenes reporting on the billionaire's media mogul's health problems, his divorce, a broken engagement, and a real-life succession battle among his kids. There's even signs that a hit HBO show has been getting under his skin. Dad's gone. We have to trust each other. And what about me? Go on, lie to me. I got a lot of options. Well, Sherman uh, has been struck by how Diminish Murdoch's own influence has been after the 2020 election, writing Rupert called Trump before Biden's inauguration to tell him to accept defeat graciously. The source said Trump refused. Trump threatened to start his own channel and put Fox out of business. The source said Murdoch seemed trapped by the people he radicalized. Gabriel Sherman joins us now. He's a special correspondent at Vanity Fair. And you can read the article on VanityFair.com and Vanity Fair's May issue which hits newsstands on May 2nd. Good morning to you. We're so happy that you're here. So this has been going on for uh, quite some time. It's more than just the Dominion case. So what gives here as it relates to Rupert Murdoch? Does, does this inform you as to uh, what may happen with, with this case? Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, I, um, I, without question, I think the fact that they're in this $1.6 billion lawsuit is a result of Rupert Murdoch's diminished leadership and the fact that there really has been this vacuum at the top of the company. And uh, it allowed all these dominion falsehoods and these lies to get onto the air of Fox because they put ratings above all else. And there was really no uh, adult in the room 
to say that, you know, we can get the ratings now, but there'll be long term consequences later. Yeah. You quote uh, Murdoch as uh, later testifying. He told Jared Kushner, of course, a former president's son-in-law, well, the numbers are the numbers when Trump was so mad about the Arizona call. I do think a diminished Murdoch is such a fascinating part of your reporting, Gabe, that many people certainly don't see that he doesn't want people to see. But you you open your piece saying Murdoch is trying to prove one last act is in him. But his erratic performance, which has thrown his personal life and his media empire into disarray, has left even those in his orbit wondering if he has lost the plot. I wonder what your answer is to that question now that you've reported this out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think um, sort of sadly, I the the quote that quote you just read answers the question. You know, Rupert Murdoch just turned ninety-two. Um, And for so long, he's sort of kept up this myth in the media that he's this all powerful mogul. And what I learned after, you know, months of reporting is that, you know, behind the scenes, he is really, you know, as his age would suggest, a very old man. And uh, there's this joke inside the Murdoch family that, uh, you know, 40 might be the new 30, but uh, 80 is 80. And I think what that means is that he he is. his health has been failing for a long time, and I think now we're just catching up to the fact that he's a shell of what he used to be. Yeah, except I don't. But Warren Buffett's also ninety-two, and people are still very keenly listening to what he says and following his My lead. So Clive, who's ninety, <laughs> Clive Davis is yeah, still very. There's keen. even more to, than age. It's well, so but fascinating. But I would point out, guys, yeah. that Warren Warren Buffett is often you know he's out giving interviews. You know, we really don't yeah. see Rupert Murdoch in public except we'll, you know, perhaps at this Dominion trial. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the Dominion trial? Because you address these revelations in the court filings um, that the damage is done. Yeah. And you write, uh, in their own words, Fox hosts have been exposed as propagandists. If we lose this suit, it's effing bad, a senior mm-hmm. Fox staffer told me. And you wrote the book uh, mm-hmm. on Fox. This is in 2014, the loudest voice in the room that, that you wrote. What mm-hmm. else are you hearing from inside insiders there? Yeah, no, I think this is really an existential crisis for the network, uh, regardless of the financial impact. Um, you know, reputationally, they've been exposed. The emails that Dominion has um, uh, obtained in their discovery process, you know, as a reporter who's covered this world, I dreamed of getting that kind of inside look and that access to Fox News. And because of the, the court order, Dominion was able to get access to Fox's internal communications. And it really was as bad as you might imagine. They were you know, lying to their audience in private. They said Trump was crazy. And then on the air for 24 hours a day, they would say he's mm-hmm. the greatest thing ever. So mm-hmm. I think that to me is one of the lasting impacts of this trial, regardless of the outcome. Yeah. And even all those questioning about COVID and vaccine, et cetera, during COVID, it was you reveal Murdoch was always following the science and always being extra careful you know, uh, during COVID. Yeah, I mean, his 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 then his then wife, Jerry Hall, required everyone to test before seeing him wear yep. masks. Um, excuse me. Happens to us all the so, time. So, yeah, I mean, I think the irony, the fact that they were I think the fact that they were really just disrespecting their audience yeah. and saying one thing while doing another, uh, I think will be, again, just the lasting impact of this era. I just want to end on this, the sadness. Wasn't that striking to you that, he, that mm-hmm. Gabe writes, after interviewing dozens of people, I was struck by how sad all the Murdoch seem. And it made well, me yeah. think, like, for what? Can like, I, why, why do it all? And one thing, because mm-hmm. you talk about this struggle between Lachlan Murdoch and James Murdoch, and you said a senior staffer told you that James Murdoch sees destroying Fox News. This is the other brother. His politics don't go along with Rupert and, mm-hmm. and Lachlan. He sees destroying mm-hmm. Fox News is his mission 
mission in life when Murdoch is gone. Do you think that that could happen? Could James take control and, and change sort of the trajectory of, of Fox News? You know, that would depend on him winning uh, the support of his two sisters, because you need um, three out of the four uh, siblings to, to align to change the leadership. And I think there's really a shadow war going on behind the scenes um, for that. But I, to your point on the sadness, I mean, all that money, all that power, and it's yeah. destroyed a family. And I, yeah. again, I think there's sort of like a, a lesson for everyone there. Oh, yeah. What matters in life, for sure, a lesson, Gabe. Yeah. Such a good read. Congratulations. Power, money, of course. It's, it's, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. Ahead, hear from the White House's top economic advisor about the recent banking failures. What she thinks, this is Lau Brainerd, about the state of the country's banking system now. Do you think there will be more bank failures this year? Welcome back. Billionaire investor Warren Buffett says even if more banks go under, depositors should not be worried about losing their money. Well, we're not through we with not? bank failures, but but we are we are through the depositor. The depositors haven't had a crisis. Banks are no bust, but depositors aren't going to be hurt. Buffett expressed unwavering confidence in the banking system's ability to protect your deposits. But as you heard him say, he still thinks more banks could fail in the future. Yesterday, the president's top economic advisor, Lael Brainerd, told me she thinks this banking system right now is sound and stable in the United States. I sat down with her in Washington, D.C. yesterday at Semaphore's World Economy Summit. Do you think there will be more bank failures this year? So I think what is important um, is uh, that banks have now seen, bank executives have seen some of the stresses um, that the two failed banks were under and they're shoring up their balance sheets and you know they are convincing um, depositors and investors alike that they have a good strategy and they are risk managing effectively. Um, if a bank is not effective in doing that, then I think, um, you know, you might still see some investors really uh, pushing harder. Um, so we'll Run. see in the months ahead. No, I think um, this is very much an individual uh, set of banks that took some unusual risks. And so I think investors are just, um, you know, very attuned to those risks. And bank management know they need to show that they have viable business models. I think one of the questions now is many Americans feel like all of their deposits um, to an unlimited ceiling are going to be insured because that was what was guaranteed to these two banks. And how can you not do it for the rest if it were to come to that? So we took very targeted actions in the case of two banks uh, that were poorly managed and took unacceptable risks and failed. Those were targeted actions. They were strong actions, but they were targeted on very specific risks. But does that mean, should we see another bank failure in the next year, it would not be the case that all depositors are protected at every level? Yeah, so I think um, we do have, we've seen a playbook. It works very well. Uh, but it is relevant for banks that fail. Um, I think more broadly, uh, there's questions uh, that may be addressed over a longer period of time um, where I think the FDIC has taken it upon itself to do a study mm -hmm. uh, and think about more broadly, uh, should we think differently about deposit insurance? And that, that's on a slower track. 
One of the things that was so striking in watching SVB and the collapse play out is that we learned from some really good reporters that six times, no less than six times, had regulators told SVB, look, you have what you guys call matters requiring attention, and the bank didn't fix those vulnerabilities. And I, it, it turns out that in 2021, there was a Fed rule issued that that is just guidance, that it doesn't have to be enforced. And so my question to you, Lael, is should the public know when a bank ignores regulators six times in a row, how do you weigh the benefit of the public knowing and the risk of sparking a run on the bank if you make that public? So I think it's one of the issues that um, the Federal Reserve really needs to take seriously. Um, you're exactly right that what happened was not just that rules were weakened, but that there um, was a change in supervision um, to much lighter touch supervision. Uh, with um, you know messaging uh, that uh, fewer issues should be escalated, um, that examiners um, should not be as intrusive for this size class of banks. Of course, in retrospect, we know that that was a mistake. And so, should the public be made aware when a bank, for example, six times ignores what regulators tell it, or do you risk a run on the bank? What's worse? So my sense is that. Um, the bank regulators have to calibrate in a consistent way what, um, uh, what guidance they make public or the banks need to make public and what guidance is not made public. So there's an escalation. That's for the Federal Reserve to decide, but I do think it's good practice for the public to be aware. The public should know at some point, you're saying. The, the, the public should generally know um, how well a bank is risk managing. That's why liquidity requirements that were removed, bank capital requirements, and stress tests that did not apply to these banks, um, those things uh, should uh, help the public test and um, you know, sort of continue to investigate the, the resilience of their banks. Right, because you can understand why an investor, a sophisticated investor, should know what's going on in a bank in terms of hedging inflation risk, but a depositor shouldn't have to be digging for that, right? They should at some point be given a heads up. And that is what stress tests, liquidity requirements, capital requirements, all of those things, that's what they are intended to do. Are you in the camp with those who have said in recent weeks that they believe that a recession in the U.S. is now slightly more likely because of the banking crisis in terms of credit tightening, lending, reining in? What do you think? So I think um, that uh, banks uh, are showing some signs of pulling back a little bit on credit. That actually could do some of the Federal Reserve's work for them. But in terms of what I see in the economy overall, you know, it's a remarkably resilient economy. Good she's work there, Pop. Like, she's, really op she's really optimistic, but I thought it was interesting that she said, you know, at some point when regulators are warning banks, warning banks, warning banks, the public has a right to know, right? Yeah. So we don't have another SVB situation where everyone's freaked out and didn't know. Transparency, transparency. Totally. Right now, officials are now conducting around-the-clock monitoring of air quality in Indiana as a recycling plant burns for another day. We're going to have the latest next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I don't know, it seems like there should be different music, but the sports should be like, rah, rah, rah. 
What happened in sports again? What sports? <laughs> the producer's like, move on, please. The Bulls had a secret weapon last night in Toronto for their play-in game. Andy Scholes yeah. joins us. Good morning, Andy. So what happened? Yeah. Good morning, Don and Poppy. So, you know, not often can we say that one of the players' kids literally helped the team win, but that was the case for the Bulls last night in Toronto. Listen to DeMar DeRozan's daughter, DR, every time the Raptors shot a free throw. You're hearing when Raptors shoot, she's screaming. In terms of the total number of the yeah. quality of shots, I'm coming. Tell me life is really good for him right now. He's in a good headspace. So just incredible dedication from DR to help her dad win, and it worked. The Raptors missed 18 free throws. It's the most misses in a winner-take-all game since 1969. The Bulls, they were down 19 in the third, but thanks to all the missed free throws, they battled back. DeRozan and Zach Levine leading Chicago to a 109-105 win. And here was DeRozan after the game on his daughter's performance. She went viral. <laughs> she. <laughs> Man, I, I, I haven't let it soak in yet. Everybody keeps saying, you know, but that's her. I kept hearing something um, during the game, and it was one free throw some, somebody missed. And I looked back, and I was like, damn, that's my daughter screaming? As the Bulls now play in Miami uh, against the Heat for an eight seed, guys, on Friday. And I'm guessing Billy Donovan's going to be like the coach of the Bulls. We need her on the plane. We're bringing her uh, yeah. to Miami. <laughs> That's the definition of daddy's girl. That's awesome. I loved it. Andy, thank you. All right. CNN This Morning continues now. A federal appeals court partially blocking a Texas judge's ruling on the abortion pill mifepristone. It means the FDA's approval of that drug still stands for now, but other limitations have been put in place. The challengers, they now are going to consider whether or not to go to the Supreme Court. We're learning new details about who might be behind the leak of highly classified documents from the Pentagon. He was a young, charismatic man who loved nature. The Washington Post reports that they were posted in a chat room by someone who worked at an unidentified military base. We didn't realize the sheer, just immense nature of these leaks. A once in a half century extreme weather event happening right now. The city of Fort Lauderdale plans to issue a local state of emergency. Lauderdale pushing over 12 inches. There's still room for more to come. I've never seen rain like this. Stinging setbacks for Fox News in the defamation case by Dominion Voting Systems. The judge accusing Fox's legal team of making misrepresentations, saying he's likely to appoint a special master to investigate. No one wants to head into a trial, particularly a trial where $1.6 billion is on the line with the judge upset with that. You've been calling for a red flag law for a while now. You think one can get past here? If we know somebody is right on that brink, of going out and committing a horrendous action. Don't you think we should be able to take action? I, 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 don't, I don't even think that's political. Hmm. Good morning, everyone. Caitlin Zotha, you saw her doing the interview uh, with the governor there, Bashir. Uh, but this is the big story this morning. Mm -hmm. This is the big story this morning. As we look at this, I'll put it over here. The Washington Post reporting remarkable. about this leaker. That's what it is. It's remarkable. Uh, we're getting as much information as possible, and we got a, some great guests on it. So that's where we're going to start. All these details about the leaker 
posted hundreds of classified Pentagon documents online. The, the Post reports that he shared photos of top secret U.S. intelligence in a private group on Discord. It is a platform that is popular with video gamers. One of his online friends says that the alleged leaker indicated that he brought the documents home from his job on a military base. The user claimed that he worked inside a secure facility that prohibited cell phones and other electronic devices that could be used to steal the secret information. His friend says that the leaks started months ago. I was first made aware of these documents, I want to say about six to eight months ago. I was in a Discord server by the name of Doug Shaker Central. And in this channel, there was classified documents being posted by a user who I will refer to as OG from this point. The documents were often listed as Ukraine versus Russia at first. However, it slowly spiraled into just intelligence about everything. And some of the members of this online group are apparently from Russia. The Post reports that the photos included highly classified satellite images and detailed charts of battlefield of the battlefield in Ukraine. We're going to begin our coverage this hour with cybersecurity reporter Sean Lingus. Sean, good morning to you. These classified documents spread like wildfire across social media. What is the latest? Yeah, Don, I mean, last night we saw the Washington Post break the story on the origins of the leak and uh, going into some of these chat rooms where um, the alleged leaker was talking with his uh, acquaintances, you could say. And according to the reporting, um, you know, they, they bonded over video games, guns, uh, God, military gear. Uh, during the pandemic. And during the pandemic is when uh, the social media platform Discord got a lot more popular. And so the Post was able to trace, uh, you know, where these conversations started and when this person uh, who went by the, the online handle OG started, um, you know, first transcribing apparently some of the documents, but then just all in out posting it posting these documents. And um, it's only in the last week, uh, as you know, Don, that this story sort of broke out into the national scene because we had these photos of these documents that CNN has also reviewed. So it really speaks to the fact that I don't think anyone uh, would have expected uh, you know, anyone in the Pentagon, uh, you know, of a certain age that's not so familiar with Discord would have expected these highly sensitive documents about intelligence on the, the battlefield in Ukraine, for example, to be posted on this you know, on this chat room where um, people were also playing, you know, Minecraft and, and Counter-Strike and other video games that uh, are not necessarily familiar to a certain generation of people at the Pentagon. So it's just a wild story all around. And um, we were able to um, communicate with some people uh, on one of these Discord chat rooms uh, where the documents were shared. Um, and But this reporting from the Post traces it back to a, a different chat room where it all began and where... Uh, this apparent leaker was was boasting about his knowledge about about uh, military operations and uh, for clout for uh, you know to sort of bond with these uh, with these other guys. There's some unknown questions, but um, there's a lot to unpack this morning, Don. Yeah, listen, I said it spread like wildfire, but initially, according to the reporting, that it, it sat there for a while and people didn't believe that it was real until they yeah. started reading it, right? And then um, I guess the intention of the leaker was just distrust in government, and so he wanted to get the information out there. Right. I mean, it, we're still sort of analyzing his motives, but, I mean, part of the culture on some of these uh, chat rooms is is sort of one-upsmanship one and, uh, and bragging and sort of doing it for the, uh, you know, for the LOL, for the lols, for, uh, for, for, for grins. Um, so there's certainly a bit of bravado there. Um, 
and and then uh, according to the post reporting there's this there's sort of reverence for this guy these younger people in this chat room the post talked to his um, supposed friend who's a minor and so this guy cultivated this almost uh, cult-like uh, you know image there in, in the chat room Don yeah, yeah and his name is OG they called him the alleged leaker Sean Lingus thank you very much for that we also have new CNN reporting this morning. The Pentagon is now limiting who gets access to highly classified daily intelligence briefs. Some U.S. officials are being cut out from an email list despite having the proper clearance following that major leak of classified documents Sean was just talking about. Natasha Bertrand joins us now. There had, well, this is separate from the issue of overclassification, which we heard um, Bill Burns talking about this week. But you know, it's interesting what the Pentagon's doing to try to put a lid on this because we don't know if the leak's over. Exactly right, Poppy. So as we've reported, the Pentagon has been doing this internal investigation to try to figure out how to stem uh, the flow of future leaks. And what they have done is they have started to comb through the distribution lists of these highly classified documents that are distributed across the entire government daily. And they've begun to whittle down those lists. And we are told that people across the government at different agencies, State Department, uh, you know, uh, the, even within the Pentagon, who were receiving this daily highly classified intelligence briefing that is put together by the Pentagon's joint staff are now not receiving it anymore. So clearly they have begun to put a lid on who is able to receive these documents. And we should note that the Pentagon previously uh, distributed these documents widely across the government to potentially thousands of people. And all of those people did have proper clearance to view these documents. It's not as though the individuals who were receiving it did not have the right security clearance, but not all of those people had a need to know um, when it came to these documents. And so the Pentagon now is trying to figure out who actually needs to see these highly classified documents that are prepared for senior Pentagon officials on a daily basis and who doesn't. And so they've begun to uh, seriously limit uh, the distribution of these documents in an attempt really to, to prevent these kinds of leaks from happening again, Poppy. Yeah, of course, whatever they can do. Natasha, thank you for that reporting. So a huge development this morning in the legal battle over a widely used abortion pill. An appeals court has ruled that Mifepristone will remain available for now, but the court also imposed some temporary restrictions. Women will not be allowed to have the medication delivered by mail. This all comes as the Justice Department fights a federal judge's ruling in Texas. He abruptly suspended the pill's FDA approval last week after it had been on the market and available to women for more than 20 years. Let's bring in now CNN's uh, Supreme Court reporter, Ariane DeVogue, with more on this. Good morning, Ariane. This is only a partial uh, and temporary freeze on the judge's ruling, right? Right. This amounts to a partial win for the Biden administration here. Basically, what this appeals court said is that the government's approval of this drug could stay in place for now. Now, that's a sigh of relief for supporters of this medication abortion drug. The drug stays on the market for now. However, what this court did is it did block some more recent changes that the FDA had put in place to make it easier to obtain the drug. Uh, and those changes, they said it could be distributed by mail. It could be dispensed later in pregnancy. So the appeals court did move there to block that. It's interesting to see this appeals court that had two Trump nominees on it is still expressing some skepticism about the safety of the drug. So even while uh, it uh, scaled back on that broad district court opinion, the fact that it's still expressing some skepticism, that's got to bother the Biden administration. 
Do you think this goes to the Supreme Court? So it's hard to tell, right? This is the early part. It's a partial win for the Biden administration. So they may think, okay, uh, right now uh, we won't go on this emergency basis to the Supreme Court. And plus the fact the appeals court is now said it's really going to expedite its hearings in the lower court. Now the case moves on to the merits. So maybe for now uh, the Biden administration doesn't go up. The other side doesn't go up. They wait and see. But it's too early this morning. We haven't heard from either side now. But again, the Biden administration was always thinking how unprecedented this lawsuit has been, because as you said, this particular uh, abortion medication drug had been on the books for some 20 years and yeah. millions of women really use it. That's why the Biden administration was so stunned by uh, this entire lawsuit. Yeah. It was fascinating reading Judge Kaczmarek's order that, you know, it goes all the way back. He takes it back to the Comstock act and just the it, it's going to be fascinating to see as it goes through the courts that's for sure Ariane, thank you thanks so we turn now to congressman ro Khanna, who joins us to talk about both of this morning's big stories abortion pills uh, and the leaks and, and also um what's happening uh with congresswoman um uh diane feinstein uh good morning thank you so much for joining us i appreciate it there's a lot to get to congressman you're in the armed services committee so let's start with this document leak and the latest that we are learning from the washington post that the leaker worked on the military base shared docs in a discord group uh, that he was part of what's your response to that well it's deeply concerning uh we need to make sure that our secrets are uh, safe and our committee will be working to see why those leaks happen and how we can protect America's secrets so our troops are not in harm's way. Are you surprised by a uh, young person leaking this on a gaming site and then you have a, you know, these teenagers following uh, this gaming site? I mean, it, the, that, the mere fact, if this reporting is true, that classified documents and, and secrets can get into the hands of, of people on a, on a site like this, it's stunning. It's stunning and it's not a game. I mean, when you have a leak of uh, sensitive information, it puts American military personnel at risk. These are people who are wearing the uniform. They're taking risks with their lives. Uh, this is not a light matter. It puts uh, Ukrainians, uh, civilians at potential risk. Uh, and so we have to understand why there was a breakdown, why these leaks happened, how to prevent them from happening again. Can you share anything because you were uh, the Pentagon briefed you yesterday, your committee? Well, I don't want to get into the details, obviously, of uh, anything that is uh, uh, sensitive. But all I can say is that the committee is deeply concerned about uh, any leaks and we'll be doing everything we can to make sure that this kind of situation doesn't happen again. And we'll be asking why there was a breakdown in the protection of intelligence. Congressman, also overnight, an appeals court partially froze a Texas judge's order that would have suspended FDA approval of medication abortion pill uh, mefepristone. What is your take on this? Well, it was an outrageous ruling by the Texas judge, as is evident by the fact that it was uh, overturned in a few days. Uh, the idea that you would deny 
a pill that millions of women have been using for years and the FDA approved shows how ideological extreme some of these judges have become. Now, I, the Court of Appeals are glad that they have allowed the pill to be used, but they uh, still have put some restrictions in place that make no sense. I mean, why should you not be able to get a medicine in the mail? It, it, in the 21st century America, uh, that makes uh, no sense. Why can't you get this pill uh, near in a health clinic without having to go through your doctor? So there are common sense uh, measures that the appeals court still uh, needs to fix, and I hope that the Supreme Court will fix it. Uh, but I, I'm glad that the Biden Justice Department is fighting this every step of the way, and it's a step to have the outrageous FDA decision by the Texas judge overturned. You use uh, the original ruling that you said was outrageous. Um, you use that ruling to call for the resignation of one of your colleagues, and you also are the co-chair of the Democratic Congressman Barbara Lee's campaign to fill Dianne Feinstein's seat uh, come 2024. Why are you asking Dianne Feinstein to resign? First of all, let me just say this. I have an enormous amount of respect for Senator Dianne Feinstein. She has had an extraordinary career in public service. She's been an icon on issues of gun violence and women's rights. Uh, but it has become painfully obvious to many of us in California that she is no longer able to fulfill her duties. Uh, she doesn't have a clear return date. We haven't been able to confirm judges at a time where women's rights and voting rights are under assault. Senator Durbin himself, who's the chair of judiciary, has said that the reason we're not being able to move these judges uh, is because Senator Feinstein isn't there. And so as someone from California, I felt an obligation to say what so many colleagues are saying in private, that the time has come for her to gracefully step down and have a dignified end to a very distinguished political career. Overnight, um, she said, Dianne Feinstein said that she wanted the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to temporarily appoint someone to take her place on the committee. Does that alleviate any of your concerns or do you still want her to resign? It's a step, but uh, as has been reported, it's not that simple. Any single senator, a Republican senator, can object to that. Uh, senator Schumer has done the right thing. He said he's going to try to get that done uh, in the Senate. Uh, but we have to see if that's even possible. And I guess my question is, why not just uh, take the step and resign uh, instead of going through all of these motions? But I will say it's constructive. The, my, the most urgent issue is that we can get our judges confirmed. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you. Thank you, Don. All right, we have a lot coming up ahead. Jury selection about to begin in the Dominion lawsuit against yeah. Fox News. That is ahead. Also in South Florida, the rain has just been stunning. Historic downpours, and it isn't even hurricane season yet. Look at all that water. Yeah. You can see that, and we've been showing this to you now a couple different times, this sections of the parking lot and sections of some green space between the main section of campus and the road that gets you out to Biscayne completely flooded here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, officials say South Florida is now experiencing a one in 1,000 year Jeez. rain event. Up to 20 inches of rain fell in just 24 hours. This flooding is turning streets into rivers, stalling cars, breaching buildings. It has even shut down Fort Lauderdale's airport. It leaves 
I mean, a lot of travelers stranded. Our Carlos Suarez joins us live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with more. I mean, you are in a street turned river, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Poppy. Good morning. So if these uh, flooding numbers hold, if all of this rainfall total numbers hold, we're talking about two feet of rain that fell across parts of Fort Lauderdale yesterday. Those kind of numbers are we, uh, what we might usually see with a hurricane. We're in a neighborhood just north of Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood International Airport, where, as you can see behind me, the story right now is all of this flooding cars here are making the drivers out here at least are making the difficult decision of whether or not they want to go ahead and try to get through all of this water. What's happening out here in Fort Lauderdale and some of these neighborhoods is uh, drivers are deciding to go against traffic because they'll hit a pocket of water where they don't know if it's deep enough and their cars are going to get stuck. And so this is what's happening for a good part of Broward County. To give you a sense of just uh, the kind of traffic that all of this is causing, uh, we are just a few minutes off of Interstate I-95, which is a pretty busy uh, interstate that connects uh, north and south. Uh, you can see the line of cars out here. The drivers uh, unsure of exactly how long it's gonna take them to go uh, where they need to be. The situation, the flooding here in Broward is bad enough that Broward County Schools decided to cancel classes for the day. And all of this is playing out uh, just a few minutes north of Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, where things there remain closed at this hour. It appears the airport might open at the earliest around noon, but already we're looking at about 300 flights that have been canceled or delayed because of all of this uh, flooding that is going on across a good part of Broward and Miami-Dade County. Uh, it's a little bit loud out here because you've got some uh, trucks moving by us, but I can tell you one of the big problems that happened here uh, yesterday is that this rain really uh, just sat on top of a good part of Broward County for most of the day. And so we just saw hour after hour all of this rain falling across a good part of Fort Lauderdale. And as you said, coming back out here, if these numbers hold, we're talking about a rainfall event that we have not seen in a very long time. Wow. We're talking about numbers that we might normally get when it comes to a hurricane. Yeah, and it's not even hurricane season yet. Wow. Carlos, thank you. Appreciate it. So jury selection is set to begin today in Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox. Fox is experiencing new legal setbacks in the case. The judge is now sanctioning Fox over concerns that it withheld key evidence. He plans to appoint an outside attorney to investigate the matter. Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis admonishing Fox attorney, saying, and I quote here, I am very concerned that there have been misrepresentations to the court. This is very serious. Now, Fox News is being sued for allegedly promoting false claims about Dominion machines rigging the 2020 presidential election. Fox denies that it ever defamed Dominion and says that it properly disclosed Rupert Murdoch's role in its public financial filing. So joining us now, attorney Ken Turkel. He has represented multiple high-profile figures like Sarah Palin and Hulk Hogan in defamation cases. So it's interesting that we have him, and we're so glad that you're with us this morning. Thank you, sir. So judge sanctioning Fox News, appointing a special master to investigate. What is behind this? I mean, this is really significant legally. Uh, Don, Don, I think one of the, the most significant things is when it's happening. It's, it's not uncommon in cases to have battles over discovery, what was, what wasn't produced. But to have evidence of this, this substance showing up in a discovery fight on the eve of trial, uh, I've never experienced in 33 years. Never. And again, you, were, you even represented 
Hulk Hogan in that very famous case. I mean, I, I read that. I read that in First Amendment class Stalker. in law school. Yes. I mean, that, so for you to have not seen something says a lot. That's my point here. Can you talk about? Go go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, you see discovery fights, right? But yeah. to have the the Grossberg uh, recordings, uh, the Murdoch testimony on the eve of a trial that has been this hotly contested, yeah. there's been so much back and forth. That, that to me is in, in just it's uncommon the discovery fight not so much you get in those in every case but this kind of evidence when they're about to pick a jury and there's sanctions now and a master i know it's fascinating to me it is i don't know how it plays out because they're in trial while the master does his investigation so it it is fascinating especially of a special master looking at this can i just ask you because yesterday we had sarah fisher on one of our journalist colleagues who said she is a little bit worried about what this suit could mean for journalism because of the malice standard here. Can you just speak to your view on that writ large? Yes. I mean, you know, the Palin case was a malice case. And, you know, I, I default to something that I think is, is the panel discussion that hasn't been had yet. And that is in an Internet age, right, when everyone has the same access to media by tagging media outlets um, and you have a computer and you put out whatever salacious content and then tag everybody, you've really gotten to the core of what started the public figure exception, the political figure exception, and actual malice. Information is traveling. We just didn't anticipate. It's being consumed and disseminated in a way that people and newscasters are on the news telling their stories. And at the same time, the stories are changing real time all over the Internet. So, look, I think we take a hard look at that component of this anyway, Beyond that, though, you know, in this case, I don't, I don't know how much it's going to be tested because there's an overwhelming amount of documentary evidence that memorializes the state of mind. And you don't really have that most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's emails, it, texts, et cetera. It's interesting. Listen, not all public figures are the same, right? I mean, you have the the Fox News newscasters and then you have Fox News on top, which they work for. Um, I'm just that's another thing, because we were talking about journalists. I don't want to get bogged down that I want to talk about Rupert Murdoch taking the the witness stand. What do you think that's going to do for the case? Don, you know, we talked about it last time. I, I, I said it's more about the atmospherics of the case, the optics of the case, right? Because the state of mind of, of Hannity, of um, Carlson, the, the four that are in the line of fire, essentially, for the reports, is what's going to matter. What is in the mind of the writer? What is in the mind of the broadcaster with respect to actual malice, the knowledge of truth or falsity or, or reckless disregard? Rupert Murdoch doesn't really matter for that, but, but what, as a trial lawyer, you're telling a story and the optics, the atmospherics around this guy at the head of everything admits under oath that he did not believe in the veracity of these statements. And as I told Don last time we talked, it was what they led with in their summary judgment uh, opposition, what um, Dominion led with, right? The Rupert Murdoch testimony. Jurors, I have a great deal of faith in the jury system, but they're humans too. And even though that, that particular fact, that particular aspect of the case, i.e., what did Rupert Murdoch know when Hannity was broadcasting? Um, doesn't matter. It's not going to be in the verdict form, but it's going to affect how they perceive the entity. I don't see how it could. Um, so I think Dominion's done a good job strategically of setting that up. Yeah. Hey, we got to go yes or no. 
Uh, everyone seems to think it's bad for Fox News. Is there a path to victory for Fox? Dan Webb's an awful good trial lawyer, John, but I, I, I have a hard time seeing it. Okay. Now, look, I don't know the whole case, but it's hard to see it on the facts that are there right now. All right. That's fascinating. Ken, okay. Thank you, sir. Good seeing you all. Good seeing you as well. Police are releasing the horrifying 911 calls from Monday's deadly mass shooting in Louisville, what the gunman's mother told dispatchers about her son's mental health. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Police releasing horrifying 911 calls from Monday's deadly mass shooting in Louisville. Five people died. Eight were hurt after a gunman opened fire on his co-workers at a bank there. The shooter's mother called 911 during the shooting, saying this about her son. I, I don't know what to do. I need your help. I, I think he, he's never hurt me once. He's a really good kid. Please don't come up him. He's nonviolent. Mm -hmm. He's never done anything. Please. Well, police say during the massacre, the gunman shot officer Nicholas Wilt in the head. Our Caitlin Collins sat down with Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir yesterday. She asked him about, about the shooting and how Officer Wilt is doing now. Take a look. Officer Wilt is a hero. Uh, he and Officer Galloway were able to get there really about three minutes after the first call came in. And we've lost five people thus far including a very close friend of mine, but we would have lost more. But for what those two individuals and so many more did. Now they rushed right in. They put their lives on the line and because of that, Officer Wilt's life is still uh, on the line. Now he is still with us, but certainly in very serious condition. Um, we all ought to be praying over the next day, two days, uh, however long it takes. Yeah, and we certainly are. And, you know, that was part of that body camera footage that was released. You can see what he was doing and the other officer who was they were the first ones to arrive on the scene. The police department has also released today that 911 audio that they got of the many calls that people placed. One of them is from the shooter's mother who calls to say that her son's roommate has called to say he has a gun and he's headed toward the old National Bank. Just to hear something like that, to see the mom calling, what's that like? You know, this, this person murdered my friend. But still, I can't imagine how his parents must be feeling right now. This is difficult for you to talk about, I can tell. Yes. And your friend is Tommy Elliott. Tommy and I met probably 15 years ago. He was just a little older than, than I am uh, now. Of all things, we met in the Capitol. Um, my dad had just become governor, and I remember we were on, oh, this, this uh, chamber trip. Um, younger lawyer, he's a banker, and, and the, the current, I think it was the president of the Senate, comes in and just totally blasts my dad, having no idea um, that I'm sitting in the room. And it <laughs> was his son is sitting in the room Yeah, right yeah, and... Um, Immediately after that, Tommy walked up and said uh, something like, well, that was something. Uh, he became my banker. I became his lawyer. Um, helped me build a law practice here. Uh, rented me space in that building when I ran for uh, uh, attorney general. I mean, it's an amazing friend. You actually were the one who called his wife to let her know. She deserved to know. Um, I came here immediately after originally getting a, 
uh, I texted and I noticed in my office in Frankfurt that there was a mass shooting going on and then getting the address that it was my bank. And then getting the information that happened in a boardroom that I knew several of my friends would, would be in. I knew it would be hours before others could call her and I thought she deserved to know. And, um, and we're real close, I, I think, right now to where I made that call hardest. I've been governor during this pandemic. I've been governor during tornadoes and floods and negative 45 degree wind chills and, and everything else. And we've lost a lot of people during those, but calling your friend's wife, who's also your friend, to tell her that her husband is gone is um, amongst the hardest things I have ever done. The hardest thing I have ever done. It's an extraordinary interview. Yeah. And you're going to see the whole thing tonight uh, with Caitlin. The family of the gunman also released this statement. Um, if we could pull it up. While Connor, likes many, like many of his contemporaries, have mental health challenges, which we as a family were actively addressing, there were never warning signs or indications that he was capable of this shocking act. Let's talk about the mental health aspect here with James Densley. He's a criminologist and co-founder of The Violence Project. It's a nonprofit. They research and study gun violence. He's also the co-author of The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. We appreciate you being here on a morning like this. We have far too many mornings after mass shootings. Can you stop this epidemic? Yeah, I genuinely believe we can, but it is gonna take everybody working together to be alert to the warning signs that somebody is in a crisis because Every single one of these mass shootings has, well, two things in common, really, which is, number one, uh, a firearm, and then number two, that these are really driven by despair. So somebody who perpetrates a mass shooting has got to a point in life where they no longer care if they live or die, because a mass shooting is always intended to be a final act. There's no real escape plan or plan for after the fact. So we have to be looking out for, in, amongst our loved ones, are there signs that somebody is getting to that point where they no longer care if they live or die? And then in that same process are now looking to purchase a firearm and maybe planning for this type of an event. And if we can start to see those types of warning signs, then absolutely we can get ahead of these shootings. But it's, but it's challenging because nobody who's mentally well perpetrates a mass shooting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are mentally ill and that there are really clear precursors uh, that, that sort of everybody is, is going to be aware of. Okay, wait, say that again. No one who is mentally well perpetrates these, but it doesn't... Say that again. So, so nobody who's mentally well would perpetrate a mass shooting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are mentally ill, that they have a diagnosed mental illness, mm. um, and, and that we can then draw a through line to say that mental illness is the cause of this, because the vast majority of people with mental illness never perpetrate this type of violence. You're more likely to be a victim of violence than you are an offender. And so mm -hmm. we want to be really careful about not stigmatizing people. I agree with you 100% on that one. So it's because mental illness has become an easy target to blame for mass shootings, but people who have mental exactly. illness, right, are most often the victims of crime, especially violent crime, than of the perpetrator. So, but isn't the common factor then, because mental illness happens all over the world. We had this discussion and we were uh, planning this segment. Uh, I'm not sure if this is your bailiwick, but mental illness happens all over the world. The only difference is that yeah. our access to guns in the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, th this is a commonality, but also let's not forget that our mental health system is also very different to other countries as well. And so the lack of a social safety net in the United States and the, you know, a lot of the reporting that you'll hear around a failing mental health system and the lack of access and affordability is also an underlying factor here. But we can't discount the fact that the United States has six to seven times its share of mass shootings per capita than what it should have. And a common factor here is access to firearms. Here's the key thing. When somebody is in a mental health crisis, when they are changing behavior from baseline, and you know that baseline, you know what this person's like, and then all of a sudden, you're seeing some warning signs of increased aggression or agitation or losing touch with reality or depression, hopelessness. That's not the time now to then be selling them a firearm. And if you know that you've got somebody in your life that's never really expressed an interest in buying a gun or owning a gun, and then all of a sudden goes out and buys one, while they've got these other challenges going on, that's your big red frag. And the other thing in our research we see as well is mass shooters study other mass shooters. They often draw inspiration from them. So that's another big warning sign. If you're purchasing weapons and also unhealthily obsessed with mass shootings, that's really where we should be concerned. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, James, for the work you do and, and for talking about this publicly. We appreciate it. Yep. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Also, we were talking and you saw part of Caitlin's interview with a really grieving Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir, who lost one of his closest friends in the Louisville mass shooting. You can see the entire thing on CNN.com. One of the biggest questions in some Republican circles, how can anyone beat Donald Trump in a 2024 primary? Our next guest has done the research. He has a playbook for it. None other than pollster Frank Luntz. He's here in studio to break it down. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is not 2016. Donald Trump is a known quantity. Uh, he makes his message of revenge clear. The field of play is focusing on President Biden's failures. What Americans want to see is the contrast between the radical left and the blueprint to ruin America and why our policies actually work. What I am saying is I don't kick sideways. I'm kicking forward. Joe Biden is the president. He's the one I'm running against. Donald Trump's a friend. I'm not running against him. All right. So several Republicans jockeying to stand out in an already crowded field for the 2024 nomination. So how can they rise above the fray? Pollster Frank Luntz says that he has a playbook for it. He lays it all out in his latest op-ed for The New York Times, basing his strategy on his interactions with his most recent focus groups. We're glad to have him. Joining us now is pollster and communication strategist Frank Luntz. Okay, so good morning to you. Let's go through your playbook here, starting with... Starting with humility. Humility. And the key here is to understand how the votes are actually cast. You can't win 40% if you're not Donald Trump. 30%. Maybe 25% is your ceiling. Okay. That's okay. The Republican primary vote, the electorate, is divided by winner-take-all states and states where you win the congressional districts. Yeah. So a Republican has to come in first or second to get the lion's share of delegates. Humility says, don't expect that you're going to come out of the gate very quickly. You have to do it slowly, methodically. Be and humble. And be humble. Okay, and what do you mean by do better? What does that mean? 
it means that you cannot support the status quo. Republican voters want significant change. They want reform. They want to drain the swamp. They want change. And you have to be the change candidate, not the status quo candidate. So then here, I'm just wondering, so real people matter, because I'm wondering if, so the GOP focus on these social issues here from 2024, like, or would that help them win over younger or more independent voters? Clearly, the governor of Florida believes so. But in our polling and our focus groups, that's not the primary issue. That's not the second issue. It's about the economy, stupid, mm -hmm. as we've heard before. And it's about bringing about fundamental change. Real people. Real people. It's not endorsements of members of Congress. It's not even good coverage on the media. Yeah. It's small business owners. It's ranchers, farmers, most importantly, veterans. What do average everyday Americans think about politics? Bring them into the campaign and you're going to be successful. Four, and I think this is important, you have to divide how you relate to the Trump presidency from how you relate to Donald Trump. The public will not tolerate you attacking the, uh, the Trump administration, 2017 to 2021. What they will tolerate mm -hmm. is saying to Donald Trump, stop being so negative, stop being so cruel, and stop attacking other Republicans. Mm -hmm. Fifth, the average Republican voter is pretty old. I, I like to say the average Republican voter is deceased. They all have grandkids, and they will change their vote based on what impacts their grandchildren. And the number one issue for the grandchildren, about the grandchildren, is the debt ceiling. Really? Republicans have to get back at accountability, and they have to get at uh, the spending issue. This is what matters most to them. Because this affects, you said, military salaries, Social Security checks, hospitals, bondholders, and what have you, on recession financial crisis. That's more important to them. That's more important to them than the social issues. Stop wasteful Washington spending. Character also matters. And we have the example of Donald Trump criticizing Barack Obama for spending so much time playing golf when Trump was on the golf course four times or five times more often at a cost of $150 million to hardworking taxpayers. They don't like that. Yeah, but Republican voters and, and Donald Trump supporters never saw that. They actually believed the former president, meaning Donald Trump, that, he, that Barack Obama played more golf when it was the exact opposite, opposite of reality. So you have to show them, you have to prove it, which is tough. Two more. This is critical. You have to bring over independents. You have to bring over conservatives. If this is just about the Trump vote, you will lose. And finally, you well, have to be able to prove that Donald Trump made the promises but in the end, he didn't deliver. You really want a wall on the southern border? You need to vote for change. You really want genuine accountability? You vote for change. Get it done. That's the candidate that wins. So that is a winning strategy. That is a winning strategy. And this can take any of these opponents against. But, but let me be clear. Yeah. Donald Trump is clearly the leader right now. Yeah. And if the primaries were held today, Donald Trump would be the nominee. I was going to say that's a winning strategy for any of the candidates other than Donald Trump. That is correct. Thank you, Frank Lentz. Thank you. Appreciate it. Poppy? Fascinating. The Washington Post speaking to a friend of the man believed to have been the leaker who leaked hundreds of classified intelligence documents. He was, a, he was a young, charismatic man who loved nature, God, who loved shooting guns and, and racing cars. More of these details ahead. But first... <laughs> Pizza rat, your days may be numbered. New York's mayor just appointed the city's first ever rat czar. So I hate rats, and uh, rats are going to hate me, going to hate me before it's over. 
we have found our rat czar, and she is focused <laughs> focused on improving the quality of life of New Yorkers. You cannot make this up. Poppy's obsessed with this story. I'm obsessed with this story and your interview with him like a month ago about the rats are. <laughs> well, that was, of course, New York City Mayor Eric Adams announcing the city's first ever rats are. Yesterday, he tapped Kathleen Karate for the job. Karate currently works for the city's education department, where she says she's already cracked down on rat infestations in schools. Now she is aiming to uh, eradicate. To get that, eradicate the rodents from the whole city. Pizza rat may live in infamy, but rats and the conditions that support their thriving will no longer be tolerated in New York City. As anyone who's seen the movie Ratatouille knows, rats love the same foods humans do. That's why every anti-rat initiative starts with making sure food-related waste gets into bins that rats can't. Okay, well, Mayor Adams has made the city's rat problem one of his top priorities. His job posting for the position called for somebody highly motivated and somewhat bloodthirsty. Here's what, he, what the mayor told us. This was back in January. <laughs> Just before the new year, you created a rat czar position to deal with the city's rodent issues. That is, when I ask people, what should I ask the mayor, New Yorkers, they said, rats. So, go. What, do you, what does this mean? Are you going to get rid of them or reduce well, you the know, number of rats? Well, you, I don't know if many people may not know it, but, you know, I hate rats. And uh, rats are going to, hate me, going to hate me before it's over. And now he's coming awesome. for him. I told you about Tim. We were walking from dinner the other night, and uh -huh. the rat scurried out of a thing, and he's just like, ah! I was like, what? He goes, it's rat. I'm like, it's just a rat, a little rat. My husband almost made us move to the suburbs. Because he's of the rat. still trying. Because of the rats outside those, of our home those, in Brooklyn. We have to admit, it's New Yorkers. They are enormous. They're enormous. Enormous. The first time people visit me in New York when we take the subway, they're like, oh, my God, what is that? And I'm like, welcome to New York. Welcome to New York. Hey. Hey. We are glad you're with us. It is the 8 a.m. hour. Good morning, everyone. Caitlin's on assignment today and breaking overnight. Really significant. The Washington Post has apparently discovered who leaked hundreds of classified U.S. documents. A young gun enthusiast, that's how he's described, shared secrets with fellow video gamers online. And also breaking overnight, new restrictions on a widely used abortion pill. And CNN is on the ground in Paris where hundreds of thousands are taking to the streets for a 12th straight day of protests over plans to raise the retirement age. There's lots to get to. There is, but first of this breaking news overnight, it looks like the Washington Post may have figured out who leaked hundreds of highly classified Pentagon documents. Yep, it's the lead there. It's a huge story. Really excellent reporting by the Post. The Post reports the alleged leaker posted these <clears throat> classified documents in a private group online on Discord. It's a platform used by video gamers. The Post interviewed one of his online friends. He says the leaker, who's known as OG, indicated he brought the documents home from a job on a military base. OG claimed he worked inside a secure facility that prohibits cell phones and other electronic devices that could be used to try to steal secret information. His friend says the leak started months ago. I was first made aware of these documents, I want to say about six to eight months ago. I was in a Discord server by the name of Doug Shaker Central. And in this channel, there was classified documents being posted by a user who I will refer to as OG from this point. 
The documents were often listed as Ukraine versus Russia at first. However, it slowly spiraled into just intelligence about everything. The Post reports OG shared hundreds of photos of classified documents, including highly classified satellite images and detailed charts of the battlefield in Ukraine. Some of the members of this online group were apparently from Russia. Let's talk about all of this with CNN national security analyst and former director of the national of national intelligence, James Clapper. Director Clapper, this is so stunning in so many ways, and it buried in this reporting. The Post reviewed about 300 photos of classified documents. Most have not been made public yet, which means this isn't over and there's more to come. What's your reaction? Well, it's not good, obviously, uh, Poppy. This is a pretty serious thing, and uh, I think when I first started reporting about this, I wondered how much more uh, is yet to be revealed, and some of which, uh, you know, could be quite serious. So, yeah, for somebody who spends a whole life in intelligence, it's pretty disturbing. According to the post-OG claim that he spent at least some of his day inside a secure facility that prohibited cell phones and other electronic devices. So if, if they pr- prohibited that, it also prohibits um, you know, people who work there from printing. How does this leak happen then? Wouldn't, you know, aren't people searched or what have you uh, when they're leaving the facility to make sure they aren't carrying these documents? <clears throat> Well, Don, the, the, the system that we have is, is ultimately based on personal trust. That's why there's uh, an attempt made to, you know, we use a fairly rigorous clearance process to ensure that people who are granted access to such classified information are, are, are trustworthy and, and are not going to expose it. So that's, that's the weak link here, and tightening up administrative procedures which is understandable, it's you know, the feeling you've got to do something. But really the, the concern here is, is people. And people, if they are bent on, on exposing classified information, they'll figure out a way to beat the, the administrative procedures. And that, that's, that's the real issue here. I thought this was striking um, that his friend who talks to the Washington Post said that OG got upset many times because people weren't paying enough attention to these documents that he was posting. So he changed his tactic. Rather than spending time copying documents by keyboards, he took photographs of them and dropped them into the server. And sort of, he had to make his followers pay attention to this. It just sat there for months, ignored before. Yeah, that's, uh, Poppy, this one thing that's, uh, in reading the article really struck me that uh, this leaker, OG, if that's, if that's who it is, has in common with his predece- leaker predecessors, mm-hmm. Aldrich James, uh, Robert Hansen, and Edward Snowden, a degree of narcissism here where there's an ego element that uh, feeling self-important by having access and exposing uh, uh, such material. And then in this case, being irritated because people weren't paying proper attention after he'd gone to all, to all the effort to, to purloin these mm-hmm. documents. So that I found that striking and, and uh, something in common with his predecessor leakers. As you were reading the, the information in the Washington Post, I'm wondering if it gave you any insight into who this person could be, what their role could be at this facility. Well, actually not, Don. Um, this could be anybody. 
I mean, the system is set up so that people who need to have access to such classified information, and there are a lot, uh, can have ready access to it. And so uh, it appears that, at least in the Pentagon, we're going to clamp down on, uh, on the dissemination of uh, such material, which is always the knee-jerk reaction after such a uh, revelation. And over time, those uh, procedures will prove to be onerous and inefficient, and they'll be relaxed. Um, so uh, I, d I don't, I can't tell, because uh, this could be a, a very senior person or someone yeah. who's relatively junior who simply had administrative access. Yeah, well, we do know they were driven by conspiracy because the Post reports that you know, OG was telling his followers the government basically set up the massacre at the Buffalo supermarket, you mm -hmm. know, to increase funding for for uh, police, et cetera. So sort of hooked them with apparent conspiracies. The site was called Thug Shaker Central. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Director. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Also breaking overnight, a significant development in the legal battle over a widely used abortion pill. An appeals court has ruled mifepristone will remain available for now, but the court also imposed some temporary restrictions. Women won't be allowed to get the medication delivered in the mail. This morning, the White House vowing to continue to fight in the courts to try to reverse the Texas federal judge's ruling that suspended the pill's FDA approval last week, even though it has been on the market and available to women for more than 20 years. Arlette Sines is here with the very latest for us. Arlette, good morning to you. Partial temporary freeze on the judge's ruling. Yeah, and really, if you look at this, this is a partial win for the Biden administration. They had wanted to see a longer-term freeze on this Texas judge's ruling, which essentially had put a pause um, on suspending the FDA approval of uh, Mifepristone until about Friday. This order, uh, or this ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, says that the pill can remain on the market, but ultimately they're trying to put in place some restrictions. That includes um, people being unable to get this pill through the mail. Also, um, it affects some of the rules and changes that the FDA had made about when exactly in a pregnancy this can be used. But this morning so far, the White House simply saying they're going to continue this legal fight. The big question right now is whether the Justice Department will try to take this to the Supreme Court to what get you, um, all to basically eliminate those restrictions. What do you think that so when when I hear you say that the White House is going to continue the fight, the natural progression would be try to have the Supreme Court look at it this week right. before the deadline tomorrow night. Um, do, do you have a sense they will or will they wait and sort of put it through the normal process of appeals? Well, they may just look at this and say, OK, you know, they have said that the FDA approval of this drug will stay in place for now. They may just decide, OK, we'll let this play out in the appeals court. They haven't exactly indicated which way they're going to go. But really, the White House and the Biden administration is quite limited in what they can do beyond just fighting this in courts. There's not much that the president can do on his own to try to uh, protect the full access to Mifepristone. You know, we've heard of some of the Democratic governors in various states trying to stock up on these pills in the event that the FDA does suspend approval. And the White House has really pushed back on this um, suggestion by some that the FDA just simply ignore this ruling from that Texas judge. So I think uh, over the course of the next day, we should have an idea of how the yeah. Justice Department's going to act, whether they will try to take this to the Supreme Court immediately or just wait and let the appeals process. Some out. more political news here uh, on this. Are like California Democratic Senator, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein is also asked to be temporarily re replaced 
uh, on the Judiciary Committee amid some party pressure to resign uh, from the Senate. Congressman Ro Khanna was on with me last hour. He's calling for her to resign. This is what he told me. Watch this. Any single senator, Republican senator, can object to that. Uh, senator Schumer has done the right thing. He said he's going to try to get that done uh, in the Senate. Uh, but we have to see if that's even possible. And I guess my question is, why not just uh, take the step and resign uh, instead of going through all of these motions? Some context, please, Arlette. What has the committee gone through with Feinstein's during her absence? Well, the committee is currently has a very narrow uh, Makeup, And so right now, many of these judicial nominees that they're trying to get through, um, they're, it, it's creating a bit of a backlog. She's been out for about a month. And we know that for the president, getting these judicial nominees is a top priority. He had been doing so at a faster clip than the former president. One of the issues that they're going to run into with this request is it's going to uh, require a resolution to be passed, which typically at the start of a Congress, uh, that goes through unanimously. But this could be an opportunity where Republicans uh, maybe try to block it. Uh, we don't know how Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell is going to act on this. Uh, you know, he has a history in the past. If you think uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, he really had stalled and blocked some of his uh, nominees, which then created uh, vacancies for former President Trump to fill. Um, so Republicans could use this as a moment to try to slow things down a bit, especially at a time when people are seeing the power of the judicial system, especially with this abortion ruling. Yeah, right the now. power of one federal judge, mm -hmm. right? Um, thank Thank you very much. It's good to have you here. Thanks. It's good to see you. So we're going to take you now to Paris. This is a live look right now. Hundreds of thousands of people nationwide are expected to protest against a controversial pension reform bill that pushes the retirement age to 64, a day before the country's Supreme Court is expected to rule on that. Now, police are on high alert as past demonstrations have erupted into violent clashes. I want to get straight now to CNN's Frederick Plyken live with more in Paris for us. Frederick, hello to you. What measures are police taking to prevent violence? Hi, John. Well, they're putting thousands of cops on the street. I can show you that right now here. We're going to pan around a little bit. You can see the riot cops here are already at the ready. And the other thing that you were saying as well, Don, is absolutely correct. There are literally tens of thousands of people coming in here right now. As you said, across France, it's probably again going to be hundreds of thousands who are going to protest against that proposed pension reform bill. And, you know, we say that. And, of course, the key to that pension reform bill is that they want to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. But a lot of French people are coming out here, coming out here today um, because they're angry at the way that the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, is pushing this law through. Essentially, he used executive powers for that, uh, bypassing a vote in the parliament. And it's quite interesting because you can see here that a lot of the folks who are coming out on the street, a lot of them are you know, older folks, folks of trade unions, but a lot of them are also younger people who are just extremely angry at the way the French president is doing this. And it's becoming a big problem for Emmanuel Macron. Many people are already referring to him as a lame duck president. He is in the first year of his second term. He's still got a lot of time ahead of him, but he has lost a lot of popular support because of the way that he's trying to push through this pension reform. And of course, that's led to a lot of these protests. It's also led to some of the violence among the protesters. In fact, earlier today, there was a group of protesters that actually stormed the headquarters of the largest luxury goods maker here in this country. For instance, the maker that makes Louis Vuitton handbags stormed the headquarters. Um, and, and actually occupied that building for a while. By and large, so far, and we're just in the beginning stages right now, things here, as you can tell, are still um, uh, very peaceful, but you can tell that the French riot police not taking any chances with this at all, Don. All right, Frederick Fleitgen in Paris, watching it all for us. Thank you, Frederick.
Let's take you uh, to Dublin from Paris. That's a live look right now. President Biden in Dublin continuing his historic visit to the region. We'll take you live there. And former President Trump is back in New York for a deposition as he faces yet another legal battle. The question is, will he cooperate? More CNN this morning to come after the break. Yes. President Biden taking questions right now alongside Irish President Michael Higgins. Let's listen. Hey, Mr. President, can I have a selfie? <laughs> no, no to a selfie. Selfie, Mr. President, very quickly, just over here. Thank you. I'm, I'm Henry McKean from Houston. Questions Radio. from reporters. Right, okay. Someone wanted Trying a to listen in a little bit. Oh, is that right? Someone wanted a selfie. But he was taking questions about the classified yeah, documents. Yeah, he did. He said there's a whole investigation going on. We should just let that play out. He also said they're getting close, meaning the intelligence community trying to figure out who may have leaked this. Do we want to listen in? All right, let's bring in our colleague, Phil Mattingly. He joins us live. This is sort of fun chat now with the president, but he did answer, you know, some serious questions about the Intel leak. Yeah, and, and probably what's interesting is it's the first time he really has up to this point. Hasn't taken many, if any, questions uh, on this trip. The White House has been very cognizant very cognizant of the fact that uh, they don't want to weigh in or take the spotlight off of this trip as it relates to the leaks. Now, what I've been told behind the scenes from White House officials, the president has been regularly briefed on what they have found on the ongoing investigation and probably most importantly on the conversations that top U.S. officials are having with their counterparts in an effort to try and tamp down what I think has been a real scramble over the course of the last couple of days. Now, the president making very clear he wasn't going to weigh in on specifics, noting that that full uh, investigation is underway, did note, I think, somewhat interesting. Interestingly, uh, that there was uh, that they uh, believe they're getting close. So we'll see kind of what develops here. But this is his first time weighing in on this, guys. Are you concerned, yeah. about, Are you concerned about the okay, leak? Okay, guys, it's time to go. Let's well, go. Oh, we got to move. I'm not concerned about the leak and I'm concerned that it happened. But there's nothing contemporaneous that I'm aware of that is of great consequence. Are you concerned about relations? Are you concerned? So there you heard. That was just from just a few moments ago, the president's real first time weighing in on this. Again, saying he didn't believe there was anything contemporaneous there, but is concerned. And I'm told behind the scenes, and I think we've reported this uh, in real time back in the States while we've been over here, just uh, how acute the scramble has been, uh, both in trying to identify the leaks, the scale of the leaks, who's behind the leaks, the Justice Department investigation, the Defense Department investigation that are both underway at this moment, but also in trying to deal with allies uh, who are subject uh, to some of the leaks that have come out here. Uh, the president, again, not weighing in on specifics beyond saying that the investigation is underway, seemed to hint that there may be some conclusion to that investigation in the near term, uh, but not saying that he believed there are any dramatic issues here. But I can tell you behind the scenes, White House officials, administration officials, very cognizant uh, of the yeah. very real problems, both with allies and just generally yeah. about uh, classified documents here, guys. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, ask our allies. Um, Phil Mattingly, thank you very much. Yep. Well, this morning, former President Donald Trump is back in New York for a deposition in a civil lawsuit filed by Attorney General Letitia James, alleging that he was involved in a decades-long scheme to defraud lenders with false financial statements. His children and the Trump Organization are also listed as defendants. Former President invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 400 times in a previous deposition in that case last August. 
CNN's Kara Scannell joins us now live this morning in New York City outside of the um, New York State AG's office. Good morning, Kara. Trump expected to attend the proceedings today. What can you tell us? Yeah, good morning, John. So we are expecting the former president to arrive probably a little bit later this hour for his second deposition with the New York Attorney General's office. And, you know, as you said, at the first deposition last August, he asserted his Fifth Amendment right against answering any questions and self-incrimination more than 400 times. That that was before the Attorney General's office filed that lawsuit. That lawsuit was filed in September, and now they're doing all of this pre-trial work. And as a part of that, the New York Attorney General's office has asked Trump to come in for a second deposition. Now, the question here is, will he answer any questions this time? There are a couple of different factors at play, and there could be some strategic decisions being made here. The former president, as a defendant in this case, and having um, asserted his Fifth Amendment the last time, that's something that a jury could hold against him. It's called an adverse inference. So if, you know, by the jury could look at him not answering questions and say, okay, that, you know, is, that goes against him. If he does answer questions this time, you know, they already know the 400 plus questions that he was asked the last time. They also already know what he's been charged with having done wrong. So they can prepare in a different way for this if they choose to answer questions. And they can answer some, they could answer none, they could answer a combination. Uh, it's really up to him when he's in there uh, shortly uh, this afternoon, you know, in a few hours. Um, he will be behind the doors behind us and be um, sitting there across the table from likely the New York Attorney General Letitia James herself. She was there the last time she introduced herself. They um, greeted each other and then she turned it over to her top investigators working on this case. Uh, you know, of course, though, there is a gamble. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which just brought the indictment against Trump, they are still investigating the accuracy of these financial statements. So anything he says today, if he does answer questions, is something that they could look at for their investigation, Don. All right, Kara will be following and we will be watching. Thank you, Kara. Also tonight on CNN Primetime, our colleague Caitlin is going to sit down for one on one with Michael Cohen. You can catch that interview at 9 p.m. Eastern. We are also following just stunning flooding in South Florida. The airport in Fort Lauderdale is completely shut down. Certain areas seeing up to 20 inches of rain. Just how record-breaking is it? Our weather team is on the ground. Plus, urban farming in a sustainable way. We're talking to Jamila Norman, the host of the TV show Homegrown, about food and wellness and how to transform your outdoor space. This morning, a one in 1,000 year rain event in South Florida, dumping up to 20 inches of rain in just 24 hours. Fort Lauderdale's airport is now shut down until at least noon today. Cars stalled, travelers stranded as historic floodwaters leave some roads impassable. Derek Van Dam live in Atlanta with this more. This is crazy. Derek. I know. I mean, come on. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, right, exactly. 20 to 25 inches of rain is rare and historic for Southern Florida. And this is the type of rain that Southern Florida would experience in a high-end hurricane, for instance. Now, the National Weather Service using that one in 1,000 year event terminology, and basically this means that the probability of this happening in any given year is very, very low. It's like winning the lottery. Could it happen? Yes, but it's extremely rare. Would it happen tomorrow? 
very unlikely. Look at how the storms kind of formed and trained over the same location right over this heavily populated Fort Lauderdale region. And by the way, we have the potential that we broke a 24 hour state rainfall record, which was set back in 1980 in Key West. Climatologists will be on site to analyze the data and assess the information. But we still have flood watches and flood warnings for Fort Lauderdale, Miami-Dade, as well as Broward. It's all thanks to the storm system. As a warm front lifts northward, it's going to trigger more thunderstorms today that could be severe. And we could see some localized flash flooding as well. Another one to two inches of rainfall possible. Just incredible video coming out of this area. Look at this aerial video of downtown Fort Lauderdale of stalled out vehicles. Now the National Weather Service has a slogan, turn around, don't drown. This is what they mean. Six inches of water on a roadway can stall a vehicle. 12 inches of water on a roadway can actually float an entire car, but 24 inches of flash flooding water that can actually tow away an entire SUV. Poppy, Don. Wow. Oof. Yeah. Very scary. Yeah, it is. What was the phrase you said? Turn around. Turn around, don't drown. Turn around, don't drown. Smart. Derek, thank you. Thanks, Derek. Okay, so let's talk about Farmer Jay, Jamila Norman, but better known as Farmer Jay. She is on a mission to teach others about food sustainability and wellness through farming. She's an Atlanta-based urban farmer who is passionate about creating a healthier, greener earth. On her television show, Homegrown, she helps families transform their outdoor spaces into beautiful and functional backyard farms. Take a look. The vision is the most cost-effective way to multiply your garden. And it's also really healthy for the plants. Absolutely. Right? Because as the mother Absolutely. plant gets too big, you want to, like, revive that plant. Yes. And one way to do that is to kind of dig it up, separate it, give it a little bit more space. Yes. And then that new plant that you've divided off, you can plant somewhere else or you can give it away. Okay, so which one are we going to dig up first? Ah, very nice. The show is now in its third season, by the way, and you can catch it on the Magnolia Network, uh, a part of our parent company, Warner Brothers uh, Discovery, or streaming on HBO Max or Max ah. now. Uh, so with us to talk about all things food, farming, and sustainability is Jamila Norman. You like to be called Farmer. Farmer Jay. Good morning, Farmer Jay. How are you? <laughs> it's good so morning. great. I'm good. I love that. I love what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. um, you, the driving force for you is sustainability. So give us some t some choices, big and small, that we can do mm -hmm. to make our lives more sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. From um, furniture to food, everything. Furniture right? to food. I mean, you know, um, I just try to pick natural materials, um, food. You know, trying to just buy organic as much as possible and you know the least processed food as possible in terms of what you're eating what you're consuming what you're feeding your family so uh you know that's, that's, that's what we're going thing. for one keeping the, it simple one things i love about your story is sort of your family and what you learn from your parents yeah. and their storytelling that informs what you do mm -hmm. every day you have a caribbean family from jamaica and trinidad just talk about that legacy and how that informs what you're showing us on the show yeah definitely i mean my parents both mom and dad both grew up in the caribbean some very small essentially rural communities in their respective countries moved here to new york you know like all people come to new york following dreams. And I was born and raised in New York, but my mom has always talked about growing up in Jamaica and, you know, how they lived off the land and all of that. And, and I had an opportunity to live in Trinidad for a couple of years. So just like food was everywhere and everything was so fresh. And so that kind of stayed with me as I lived my life, raised my family. And when I moved to Atlanta, 
it just presented an opportunity to, to, to farm, and I just wanted to do it. Not a lot of green space here. You mentioned New York, right? Mm. Not a lot of green space Not here. Green People space. have tiny balconies if you do have an outdoor if you space have, at if all. You have an outdoor so space. then what can, what can you do? Where do you begin if you live in a place like New York City or in an urban sprawl, as they call it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a place like New York City, I mean, you know, you can definitely, like, if you have a balcony or something like that, you can grow on your balcony. Um, also, you know, there are, like, small community gardens, you know, in New York. So I, I, would, I would encourage you to kind of, like, find those. Um, and join those gardens. Um, but in Atlanta, there's just lots of green space, right? And that's what presented the opportunity to have farms. There are over 30 urban farms in the city of Atlanta proper. So, um, and they range in size from like a house lot up to like seven acres. So we're, we, we, got, we got a little revolution me. down there. We don't have outdoor space, but we have a little community garden down the block yeah. from us in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. I think you found my Saturday morning activity. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Farmer Jay, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate so good it. to see you. Thank you we so can't much. wait to watch. Congrats. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can see it on HBO, or on Max. On Max. On Max. Max. On Max. On Max now. Thank you. So an essay written by a high school student flagged by AI as being plagiarized. Only problem, it wasn't. We're going to explain. Plus, out just moments ago, another key inflation report following yesterday's pretty much better inflation report, what it all means for this economy ahead. Can't you just grow a little garden, too, in your kitchen, like, and it gets a little sunlight? Oh, there's a thing. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is just into CNN this morning, another key report on inflation, the producer price index following yesterday's consumer price index showing inflation falling to the lowest level in nearly two years. That's great. CNN's business correspondent, Christine Romans, crunching the numbers. What have you found? I'm so relieved. This is a dramatic cool down in inflation. This is producer prices. This is the factory level. So this is what, you know, at the factory floor, the prices they're paying. Eventually, that goes on to consumers. 2.7%. Uh, that's a dramatic cool down. We were expecting more like 3%. It was 4.6% last month. So that is a big one month drop in prices that they are paying inflation and month to month, the decline of, of 0.5%. Price is actually falling. Very good news there. This is the slowest inflation for producers uh, in more than two years, almost back to where we were before this inflation crisis began. This is important progress, and it comes after yesterday when we also saw important progress on consumer prices. Still 5%, still above what the Fed would like to see, but cooling down dramatically. And yesterday we learned the grocery prices fell I'm going to say this again. Grocery prices fell for the first time since 2020, since the beginning of this inflation crisis. So all of that heavy machinery that the Fed was using and and the price problem seems to be working. So I'm hopeful that this means that consumers will finally start to feel a little bit of relief. Still work to do. No question about that. The Fed could still decide to raise interest rates another little tiny bit just to make sure that they've, they've got proof here. But this is... I think this is definitive evidence that a peak is in on inflation. We will not see what we saw in the 1970s. And the Fed, with all that work, is getting this under control. Amen. I hope I'm right. <laughs> yes, I think you I are. You're you're right. Right. Everybody would, watching is hoping. Any day right I would bet well. on you to be right. Christine, thank you're you. You're welcome. Thanks, thank guys. You, Christine Romans. Picture this, okay? You write an essay completely on your own, right? For school, only someone later says, no, that wasn't you, that was AI, artificial intelligence. That is what happened to a high school senior in California. Her story is featured in the Washington Post. 
A columnist who wrote the story says that he was testing AI software that helps teachers spot plagiarism in their students' work. The software, he says, incorrectly flagged the student's essay as having been aided by ChatGPT. So joining us now, our go-to person when it comes to this AI stuff is Sinead Bovell. She's a futurist tech entrepreneur and the founder of Weekly Advice for Young Entrepreneurs. Thank you very much. Sinead, I, I saw this in the Washington Post, and immediately I thought uh, about you. I was having a conversation with someone in my family this weekend who is a principal at an elementary school, and I said, how do you decide, how do, how do teachers know if it's chat, GPT, T. if it's AI, or if an actual student is writing it? There is this tool out there, but that tool can be wrong as well. Right. So those the AI detection tools, they're actually quite often more wrong uh, than not. Of course, the, the tool that was used in this case, a Turnitin uh, AI detector tool, it, this company says it has about 98% accuracy in flagging AI-generated content, uh, but that number hasn't been evaluated by external researchers. Uh, so I think in, in, in an era when AI is going to become a part of our common discourse, a part of our world, trying to play this cat and mouse game of detecting AI-generated content is just going to become more and more challenging over time. These tools are going to get better uh, since most of these AI detection tools have come to market. We've already seen a massive update in the AI system that's powering systems like ChatGPT. Uh, so I think it's kind of a losing battle for teachers to try to consistently flag AI-generated content. I there's think, a lot of variability and, and doubt there. I think there's also a question about sort of the role of the government in all of this and regulation. We've been so behind the ball in terms of regulating social media. I sat down yesterday in Washington, D.C. with the president's top economist, Lael Brainerd, and asked her, you know, just because we can do all this with AI, does that mean we should? Here's what she said. I do think um, that there are some important risks here. Um, and yes, absolutely, we need to make sure that there are important safeguards that we all agree and put those in place um, so that some of those uh, risks that are really quite uh, sobering uh, are addressed at the outset. That's a hope, but what should the government do in your opinion? When it comes to education uh, in particular, I think banning these systems or trying to catch students uh, using these types of systems isn't the right step forward. The purpose of education is to prepare students for the economy and the world of tomorrow. Yeah. That world is going to include AI. So if we want students to be able to participate in that world, to be able to use these tools safely, they need to be working with them now. Uh, and then when it comes to a government level, what role does government have here? We've seen a lot of uh, leading voices in tech call for an office of strategic foresight. So we don't always feel like we're caught off guard slamming the panic button to try to keep up with the latest iterations in artificial intelligence. And instead, a year or two ago, when research into these systems was starting to become a lot more prevalent, we could start to measure uh, the potential disruption, uh, the guardrails that should be applied, give institutions like academia, which tends to move a little bit slower, the chance to catch up and, and reformulate curriculums. Uh, and then of course, for, for things like safety, are watermarks on AI-generated content a possibility? Uh, what AI detection yes. tools could be helpful? Do we have those in newsrooms? Uh, so those are all of the different standards and, and pathways we can take, but it starts with having a lot more foresight and not kind of always being caught off guard with the latest iteration in technology. Yeah. 
Yeah. You were talking about, Don was talking about watermarks. I asked last about week. watermarks, yeah. yeah. Because, you, I mean, you have to be able to identify it and who is, what is real and what yeah. is not. And actually, the who is Although the Although I could sleep another hour if AI would just, you know, chat well, GPT write all, not write it put all. that out there in front of everyone, <laughs> the bosses who are watching as well. Sinead, thank you very much. I don't much. agree with that at all, anybody. Thank you, Sinead. Good to see you. We'll see you soon. Thanks, New guys. rules have baseball see games. Soon. See you soon. New rules have baseball games ending quicker. And unintended consequence? Hmm. Well, it's less time for beer. Oh, my gosh. Short of games impacting beer sales, alcohol sales at the park. I don't know if that's good or bad. Harry Anton is here with this morning's number. What is... You're safe? Angle it well. Tampa Bay Rays, one game shy of making history. They beat the Red Sox 9-7 last night to push their season-starting winning streak to 12. 12 is the biggest winning streak the team has ever had at any point in their history. They are now just one win shy of tying the major league record to start a season, which was set by the Brewers and the Braves in the 1980s with the new pitch clock, the time of last night's game, two hours, 44 minutes. That's quick. Shorter games means a little less time to chug that beer. So what's that doing to alcohol sales at the ballpark? Senior data reporter Harry Anton is here with that. Okay, my un- not fun take, but is wasn't this in place so people didn't drink as long, so less drunk driving? That's exa- it's, Basically, it was that they would not leave the ballpark with as much booze in their system. Yeah. Right? So, so why would you change that? Well, we're going to get to that. It oh. perhaps has to do a little <laughs> bit with this. So this morning's number is... I just want to use one ballpark as an example, right? So the Major League Baseball, Houston Astros home park, a Minute Maid park. The alcohol sales for last year were $28.4 million. Now, that was across about 95 major events in 2022. But the vast majority of those were, in fact, baseball games. There were a few concerts in there as well. But $28.4 million gives you an idea that booze is a big, big sale point for baseball teams, right? So the traditional rules was that you only sell through the end of the seventh inning. But the MLB's new pitch clock has made seven innings end about 24 minutes shorter, quicker on average, right? So what are some teams doing? Well, they're now going to sell alcohol until the eighth inning. That gets back about 75% of the time of lost sales, right, because of the faster games. And But by my estimate, that might make teams at most about a few extra million dollars, but you know, obviously that perhaps could lead to more people out on the roads. Right, Poppy? Yeah. I mean, you know how my position on this is. I think it's not as safe. So um, yeah. this could also have ill-advised effects, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. So, okay. So here's an estimate of the time between out the alcohol cutoff and the end of a nine-inning MLB game. So last year, with the seventh-inning cutoff and the 2022 game time, it was about 42 minutes. Now, with the 2023 game timing and the eighth inning cutoff, look at that. It's only about 18 minutes. So now 24 minutes less time elapses from people getting alcohol in their system and then going on the roads. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that might lead to some more people who perhaps shouldn't be driving, driving. And more than that, there's actually a study on this. Okay, there was a study. This should be a one here. There we go. Study of 2006 to 2015 home Philly games More time between the end of the game and the end of alcohol sales led to less violent crime around the stadium. So we know for a fact 
that when in fact you squeeze in the time and you're leaving less time for people to get the alcohol through their systems, we know that it does in fact lead to more crime, at least in Philadelphia Philly games. Hopefully that doesn't happen this year, but we'll see. Told you. Disparaging my old city. <laughs> I like Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Not Phila. Philadelphia. You got the accent down. I'm going to leave it to you. I do the New York accent. Water. Water. Not water. 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 Guys, water. Eh. Water. Just water. It's H2O. Well, according to Harry, it's beer. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. <laughs> Happening in just minutes, jury selection will begin today in the Dominion Voting Systems defamation trial against Fox News as a judge sanctions a network for withholding key evidence. Details ahead. This morning, as a huge fire at a recycling plant spews toxic smoke, this is in Richmond, Indiana. Records show local leaders knew that building was riddled with fire hazards for years. In 2019, the owner admitted the plant didn't have sprinklers and ignored an order to repair the property. But it's unclear what steps the city took to enforce that order. Meantime, officials are conducting around-the-clock air quality monitoring. They're nervous. The debris may contain asbestos from burning plastics. However, no toxic compounds have yet been detected in the air. More than 2,000 people still can't go home. 2,000 people. And those living downwind of the fire are under a shelter-in-place order. The cause of the fire is still unknown this morning, and it will likely be several days before it stops so investigations can begin. CNN has reached out to the company for a response, and we have not heard back. There's also this this morning, just minutes from now, jury selection begins in Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation case against Fox. Roughly 300 potential jurors will be whittled down to 12 jurors and 12 alternates. They will be asked about their news habits, including whether they watch Fox, but they will not be asked if they believe the 2020 election was legitimate or if they had any connection to the Capitol insurrection. If a jury isn't seated today, the process will continue tomorrow. Opening statements set to begin Monday. The trial is expected to last about six weeks. In a pretrial hearing yesterday, Dominion also played previously unaired audio of Fox host Maria Bartiromo's conversations with former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. Now, the judge is sanctioning Fox for withholding evidence like this and only turning over the recordings to Dominion last week. I'm going to be asking you for as much evidence as you can tell us about these lawsuits. Whatever you can tell us in terms of evidence would be really helpful. Okay, great. I can tell you exactly what we have. Perfect. And, um... What about this software, this Dominion software? Uh, that's, that's, that's a little harder troubling. to tell you right. It's, being, it's anal- being analyzed right now. I mean, there are a couple of races that have been reversed because uh, the Democrat was triple counted, two, two already in Michigan. Now, whether that applies for the whole state or not, I, I can't tell you yet. This Dominion software, does Nancy Pelosi have an interest in it? Fascinating. Yeah, jury selection today. Fascinating, I know. To be, uh, you don't have to be a fly on the wall just to be in the courtroom mm-hmm. and to witness this and the reporters getting to cover it. We thank you for watching us, everyone. We're so glad that you did and you have yourself a great day. But in the meantime, make sure you tune in to CNN's New Central, which starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. 
Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.